We're continuing in our nine-part study in the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, for the next two weeks, we have the great privilege to study the attributes of God. These two studies are always the highlight of the students of FOF. We ask many of them, what teachings have been most impactful to you? What instructions, what study has been most beneficial to your Christian faith? And a great majority of the students have said over and over repeatedly, studying God has been the most impactful thing in my life. I will, know, I will never be the same. I will never be the same Christian. I have been unbuckled. My, my paradigm has shifted all because of studying about God. I am convinced that the most important concern for any believer is a proper view of God. It is that great doctrine, theology proper. It is the first theology. It is the foundational groundwork theology that must be the concern for any true follower of Christ. It is the single most truth in the world. This is where truth begins. You get this wrong and truth is impossible for you. If you get this wrong, you are certain to be mired in error. Who is God? Who is God? That is the most important question that you can ever ask. A.W. Tozer said, this is the most important thought, most transcendent and penetrating thought. The thoughts that come into our minds after the word God. This is not an idea that I have developed. Many men of God before me have attested to the same notion. I have in your outlines the testimony of great men of God. A.W. Tozer again. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about Him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. To those who say the study of God is impractical, irrelevant, not relevant to our modern world, Tozer says, it is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure to apply Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. It is the most relevant doctrine. It is the most practical. It affects everything we believe and everything we do. A.W. Pink, a spiritual saving knowledge of God, is the greatest need of every human creature. The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of His perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. An unknown God cannot can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing so magnified the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. J.I. Packer, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is this eternal life that Jesus gives? The knowledge of God, John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9.23.24 This is what Yahweh says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, 
Or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. What of all the states God ever sees man in, gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6.6 6, I desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. Once you become aware that the main business that you and I are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what more higher, exalted, and more compelling goal can there be? And to know God. I agree with the testimony of these great men that the greatest need that we have now and the greatest need of the Christian church now is a clear and biblical knowledge of God. But sadly, most Christians give little thought to God. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians. Sadly, many, if not most Christians have an ignoble view of God. God has become to many a manageable deity, a God fashioned in the image of man rather than God as He is. Tozer, many, most Christians' conception of God is so decadent, so sinful, so man-centered that it is beneath the dignity of God. Pincus said, the essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts of God that are inconsistent with His character and attributes. So many Christians view of God as so ignoble, so unbiblical, so decadent, that it is idolatrous, it is blasphemous. It is beneath the dignity of God. Christians, by and large, have a warped view of God. And it's because of the church, it's because of pastors, because of teachers. The blame belongs to us. We are the reason for the warped view that lies in the congregation because so many have presented a view of God that is not consistent with the scriptures. The modern church's view and presentation of God is so user-friendly, so sanitized, so man-centered, that a right, honorable fear of God is not required nor warranted. Steve Lawson has said, step into the average church these days and you will likely see that the services are designed to remove the fear of God and to promote it. It seems that everything today is geared to make man comfortable in the church, not convicted. Amused but not in awe. In our efforts to make seekers more at ease in the church, we have downplayed the reverential awe we should feel in the presence of Almighty God. We have so emphasized the horizontal aspect of our relationship with God that the vertical aspect, our reverence, awe and fear toward Him has been almost completely neglected, sit under many of the sermons being preached, listen to many of the choruses being sung, and read many of the books that are being written, and you will see that there is for the most part little of a high view of God being spoken, sung, or read about. As a result, there is very little that would instill in hearts a healthy holy, reverential awe of God. We live in a day in which a God, small case G, made in our image, has swept into our churches like a flood, and with it has come an unhealthy casualness toward God that borders and violates, goes into blasphemy. David Wells has said, the modern church has turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs, rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God that exists for us, for our satisfaction. We did not learn this in the marketplace. We have learned this in the church. President of Westminster Seminary, Robert Goffrey, wrote, 
evangelicals need to repent. Too often we have replaced the consuming fire with a mild-mannered God. Replaced the worship of the invisible God with some forms of human invention. Replaced the moral law of God with the fulfillment of felt needs. J.B. Phillips, decades ago, stimulated evangelicals with his book, Your God is Too Small. Today, we need a book entitled, Your God is Too Bland, or even perhaps, Your God is a Pagan Idol. For most Christians, that title fits us. Your God is not the God of the Scriptures. Your God is a pagan idol that exists for your self-pleasure. Christians need a spirit of repentance that will lead to a thorough reformation of doctrine, worship, and life. We need, indeed, a reformation in the most basic place, in our view of God. Who is God? We think we know God. Well, let's go back to the purity of the Scriptures to consider, do I have a blasphemous idolatrous, decadent view of God? Is my, my, is my conception of God consistent with the Scriptures? Or am I worshiping a God that I have created in my own mind, fashioned after the image of myself? And so when I sing, when I pray, when I obey, I am singing to myself. I am praying to myself. I am obeying my own lusts. We must go back to the Bible. Now the attack first place is this. Before we can go to the Bible, people raise this question. Is the Bible, the conception of God, our understanding of God, doctrine of God, is this worthy of our study? Is this doctrine relevant? Is it practical? Does it warrant our attention? Packer, G.I. Packer put it like this, quote, why need Someone has said, why, why do we need to take time off today for this kind of study? Surely, a regular Christian can get on without such a lofty study. The questioner clearly assumes that a, that a study of the nature and character of God will be impractical and irrelevant for life. In fact, however, it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you, you're ensuring yourself that you will waste your life and lose your soul. I have before us, I believe, 12 reasons why it is important for all of us to pursue the study of God. 12 reasons why it's significant, why it is essential. First of all, the way to truly see and know God is through the study of His attributes as revealed in Scripture. This is the way we see God. This is the way we know God. No man can see God and live, Exodus 33:20. If you want to see God, it's a pipe dream. You're asking for a death sentence because no man can see God and live. John 1:18 has said, No man has seen God at any time. God has revealed Himself through the Word of God and He's revealed Himself through His attributes. And so by studying the attributes of God, we are coming to see God and know God. Secondly, the character of God is the basis and standard for all human morality. The character of God is the basis and standard for all human morality. The final verse of Judges reads, Judges 21-25 In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Moral relativism. No absolutes. No moral truth. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was righteous. Everyone was an authority to themselves. You remove God and that's the result. There's no standard or, or, or rule for, for moral 
living, moral right and error, truth and error. God is the standard of morality. The laws of God set down in the scriptures are an expression of His own character. The laws of God are a reflection of His moral character. Leviticus 11.44 Be holy because I am holy. We are called to live holy and righteous lives because that's who God is. We are to tell the truth because God is truth. We are to love the Lord with all our hearts and mind because God exists for His own glory. He is not an idolater. He does not worship us. He does not exist for us. He exists for Himself. Therefore, that moral law has come down to us. Thirdly, all sins can be ascribed to a failure to think rightly about God. All sins can be ascribed to a failure to think rightly about God. So consider any sin that you have committed or are committing. And you could trace that decision, trace that act, that attitude, all the way back, sequentially back to a wrong understanding of who God is. You believe lust is better than God. What's because you have a wrong view of God? You don't understand that God is the author and the origin of all pleasure and true satisfaction lies only in Him. You believe that self is better than God while you don't understand your own depraved nature and the beauty of God, the holiness of God. All sins, every single sin, Every single will, decision, act, attitude can be traced back to a wrong understanding of God. Tozer rightly identifies distorted views of God as idolatry. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. This idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than He is. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that we as civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertaining of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Just because we don't bow down to images, that that does not mean we are free from idolatry. Idolatry is entertaining thoughts that are not worthy of Christ, worthy of God. And those idolatrous notions bear fruit in our lives, cause us to think wrongly, therefore speak wrongly, act wrongly, behave in a way that causes us to dishonor God, cause pain in our lives, in our families' lives, cause us to undermine the claims of the gospel. It all comes from idolatrous notions in our minds. I mean, that was the first sin, right? The first sin given to Adam and Eve was judge for yourself. You are God. You eat this fruit of the tree. You will know truth. God has lied to you. You will not die. Judge for yourself. And with that idolatrous notion, yes, God is afraid. God is lying. He's keeping joy from us. That idolatrous notion directed at God caused them to violate His command. So the sin was not eating the fruit. Sin occurred previous to that decision, to that act. Sin occurred in their mind when they conceived of God as as of being wrong, of being untrue, of being unfair, unjust, of being afraid. Wrong thoughts of God was the root of the fall of man and continues to be the root of all of our sins. Fourthly, knowing God is essentially our highest calling and greatest privilege. Highest calling, greatest privilege. So many verses here. Philippians 3, 8-10. Paul at the end of his life. What is he pursuing in his ministry, in his life? In the fall season of his, of his life, what is he pursuing? He wants to know Christ. He wants to know God. 
1 John 3, 2, John is aged, apostle, the only one left. His desire is to see him, to be like him in every way, 1 John 3, 2. What is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians? Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. He bows his knees before the Father, that Christ may dwell in their hearts, that they might they may be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is a privilege of the Christian life. Our highest calling to know God. Number five, a study of the attributes of God is the basis for enjoyment of God and our spiritual growth. It's the basis of our enjoyment of God and our spiritual growth. A personal relationship with anyone requires knowledge. Without personal knowledge, a relationship is impossible. And to enjoy that relationship is all the more impossible. Likewise with God. How can we enjoy God? How can we grow as Christians apart from God who is the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith? God has revealed Himself through the Scriptures telling us He wants to be known. That He wants to have a living, vibrant relationship with us but that is made only possible through our knowledge of God through the Holy Scriptures. Next, the attributes of God are foundational to our faith and hope. Foundational to our faith and hope. Knowing the character of God assures us that He can and will do all that He purposes and promises. Faith in God is based on knowledge of who He is according to the Scriptures. That's the basis upon we respond in faith. amazing how we live the Christian life and we face uh, the trials and difficulties of life. We go back to who is God? Is God true? Is God, is God there? Does God exist? Is God true? Is God sovereign? These painful things are happening to me. I'm filled with grief and sorrow in my family, in my life. These things do not make sense to, to my experience. Is God sovereign? Is God in control? Does God care? Does God know? Where do we turn to? The attributes of God. They are the foundations of our faith and hope. Number seven, a study of God enhances our worship of God. We worship God for who He is. The attributes of God are a description of who He is. When God is worshipped in the Bible, He is worshipped in response to His attributes. So when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he bows down and says, Woe is me, in humble worship of God. The elders surrounding the Lamb of God in Revelation 5, when they see the compassion, the mercy of God, they respond in adoration. Our worship is deepened, enhanced, strengthened. We grow in our understanding of who God is. Coupled with that, a study of God enhances our prayer lives. Our shallowness of our prayer lives can be directly tied to our shallow understanding of who God is. And we grow in our understanding, our knowledge of God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence, God's imminent presence. He's transcendently present. He's there throughout the universe. He's in the lofty place, in the high place. We also understand God's imminent presence. He is with me right now, this second, intimately. He's in my heart. He knows through His omniscience my thoughts. He knows my burdens. And therefore, when I cry out to Him, He is here. Directly aids us in our prayers. Number nine, a study of God enhances our witness, empowers us to live the Christian life. 
in the world enhances us, it strengthens us to be salt and light. Just kind of painting with broad strokes here, spending just limited time because there's just so much. We can't, I mean, each of these points can be a whole sermon in of itself, but we must move on. A study of God enhances and enriches our study of Scripture by knowing the author of the Scripture. We come to a greater appreciation of it. Knowing who wrote these truths causes us to cherish its truths all the more. When our focus next is on the attributes of God, we begin to view life from God's perspective and our own, not our own. And uh, this is the, the paradigm shift that must occur as we study through this. We, we are born into a man-centered world. We grow up and we are brainwashed through every possible avenue to see the world through our lenses, through our experiences, where the world revolves around us. Everything has to do with us. All the more in our self-esteem, self-man-centered culture, all the more we are the center of everything. And then we open the Bible and it's completely opposite. Where the center is God. He is the beginning of all things. He is our creator. And the Bible opens up to us a whole new perspective of seeing the world and seeing ourselves. Where we see life from God's perspective rather than our own and therefore it changes everything. Everything is different because the perspective is different. That is how we are to live the Christian life. From the perspective of God. Perspective of the scriptures rather than our own. And finally, knowledge of God's attributes according to the scriptures protects us from a wrong view of God. Protects us from a wrong view of God. Psalm 50.21, God said, You thought I was altogether like you. That's what we thought. We thought, God, you were nice, you were kind, you are understanding. You know, you won't judge us. You'll understand. You'll let bygones be bygones. You're not so, you know, angry at sin. You're, you're, you have sin in yourselves as well. No one's perfect, therefore you don't understand. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Job 42.7 Yahweh said these things to Job. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The Lord said these things to Job's friends, not to Job. I am angry with you because you have misrepresented me. You have spoken of me what is not right. We do not want God to be angry with us. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God to fall into His wrath and indignation because not only do we have a wrong view of God, we have misrepresented Him. Study of God is the most relevant doctrine, most practical. So let us begin our study. Let us embark with our limited time today and next week on the study of God. Our study of God must begin with His existence. With His existence. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. Only 3% of Americans claim to be atheists. And I doubt there are any atheists in this room this morning. Now, why would you come to church? Why would you be here? Why would you be a member of Cornerstone if you did not believe in the existence of God? But the Scriptures, God knows our hearts. He's not led astray by our outward pretense. He's not confused by our professions. The Bible tells us that all of us are tainted with atheism. A certain kind, a certain variety, a certain version of atheism. And none of us are immune to this kind of atheism. Or you sit there and say, no, not me. I'm not an atheist. 
Well, I'll tell you, you are of a particular kind. I'm going to quote extensively from Pastor Stephen Charnock. I've spent many hours reading through this book this week. The Existence and Attributes of God. 1,200 pages on who God is and how He has revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures. I want to quote from him because my thoughts are so elementary compared to his. My thoughts are not worth preaching on Sunday morning. But his thoughts of God from the Scriptures are worthy of our attention. I know that many of you will not open its pages and read it. So, we're going to read it together. We're going to read portions of it together and that will be the bulk of our time, our remaining time. He said, no man is exempted from some spice of atheism by his depraved nature. That atheism is a secret atheism. And he quoted Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. In the genre of poetry, the fool is a term used in scripture signifying a wicked man. He is a wicked man in the sight of God, well not to others, because he says God does not exist in his heart. He dare not proclaim this with his tongue. Publicly he is not an atheist, publicly he is a theist. Publicly, he proclaims to be a righteous, godly man. But in his heart, he says there is no God. Another interpretation of this verse is that he wishes that God did not exist. In his heart, that is his desire, his hope, his wish that God did not exist. So he is a secret atheist. Secret atheist. Others are like men of Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They profess loudly in their commitment to God, but you look at their lives and they are practical atheists. Practical atheists. So God judges rightly, he judges, judges us not by our profession, but by our actions, by our decisions, how we live our lives. Because actions are a far greater revelation of, a, of who a man is than what he says. The testimony of works are louder and clearer than that of words, says Charnock. The frame of a man's heart is to be measured not by what he says, by what he does. And so by that measurement, all of us to different degrees, all of us, we are practical atheists. He continues, practical atheism is natural to man in his depraved state and very frequent in the hearts and lives of men. The natural bent of every man's heart is distant from God. The leprosy of atheism has infected the whole mass of human nature. All sin is founded in the secret practical atheism. All sin. We deny His sovereignty when we violate His laws. We disgrace His holiness when we cast our filth before His face. We disparage His wisdom when we set up another rule as the guide of our actions than that the law He has fixed. We slight His sufficiency when we prefer a satisfaction in sin before a happiness in Him alone. Every sin invades the rights of God and strips Him of one or other of His perfections. It is such a vilifying of God as if He were not God. And we do this in our hearts. We vilify Him when we Profess Christ, profess God, but act on sin. We vilify God as if He were not the supreme creator. 
As if we had not our being from Him. As if the air we breathed in, the food we lived by, were, were our own by the right of our supremacy, not His. Sin implies that God is unworthy of His being. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart. An aim at the destruction of the being of God. Since man is so deeply in love with sin as to count it the most estimable good, he cannot but wish the abolition of that law. And he thus wishes the destruction of God. So every time we sin in our hearts, we want God to be destroyed. We want God not to exist. We curse God in our hearts when we sin against Him. He lists for us evidences of practical atheism. Evidences. A way to do self-inventory. The first evidence of practical atheism is self-love. To make ourselves the object of our highest love is atheism. If self-denial be the greatest part of godliness, then self-love is the greatest part of atheism. Self is the great antichrist and anti-God in the world that sets up itself above, above all that is called God. This self-love and desire of independency from God is the root sin of all sins. Sin and self are one. Romans 3.11 No one seeks after God. No one. None seek God as His rule, as His end, as His happiness. All have turned away. He desires no communion with God. He, des- he places His happiness in anything inferior to God. He prefers anything and everything before God. He has no delight to know Him. He regards not those paths which lead to Him. He loves His own filth better than God's holiness. His actions are stained and dyed with self and are void of that respect which is due from Him to God. And Charnock takes us even further. He pauses at this point and gives more evidences of self-worship. Evidences of this first evidence of self, of practical atheism. He gives us evidences of self-worship. Five evidences of self-love. First of all, he is mired in frequent self-applauses. He is his own cheerleader. He loves himself. He is his own fan. Inward arrogance and presumptuous reflections. He is mired in inward arrogance. In reflections that are presumptuous. There is nothing more ordinary in the nature of man than than obsessing of their own perfections, acquisitions, or actions in the world. There is nothing more ordinary in our nature, in our hearts, for us to obsess over how perfect we are, how good we are, how, how great things we have done, how, what, what successes and achievements that we have made. Most think of themselves above what they ought to think, Romans 7, 3 and 4. Few think of themselves so meanly as they ought to think. This sticks as close to us as our skin. This is the filthiest soil of nature. Second evidence of self-love in ascribing the glory of what we do, what we have to ourselves, to our own wisdom, power and virtue. We ascribe glory to ourselves for what we have done, what we have purchased, what we have acquired, what we have achieved. Isn't this what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel 3 when he stood up in the roof of his kingdom and he said to himself, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Oh, we are all Nebuchadnezzars. When anything succeeds well, we are ready we're quick to attribute it to ourselves. Look what I have done. Number three, this is a painful one. In being highly concerned for injuries done to ourselves and little or not at all concerned for injuries done to God. 
highly concerned when our reputation is injured, when we are dishonored, disrespected, when we are offended, we are highly sensitive. When God is offended, dishonored, defamed, we show little or no concern. How will the blood rise in us when our honor and reputation is invaded and scarce reflect upon the dishonor God suffers? We are more troubled for what disgraces us than what dishonors God. Two more. Entrusting in ourselves evidence of self-love. When we consult with our own wit and wisdom more than inquire of God and ask of Him. When we attempt things in our own strength and industry without application to God for direction, blessing and success. Dependence and trust is an act due from the creature to the Creator, but instead we trust in ourselves. The final evidence of self-love is that man making himself his own end in happiness. Man making himself his own end in happiness. He exists for himself. His life pursuit, his life purpose is himself. He that loves pleasure more than God says in his heart, there is no God. My God is my pleasure. He that loves his belly more than God says in his heart, there is no God. My belly is my God. Not only that, he would make himself the end of God where God's purpose, God's chief aim is not to glorify himself, but God exists to glorify me and please me. To make ourselves our last and ultimate end is to co-rival with God. God alone being the supreme being, He alone can be the ultimate end. For if there were anything higher and better than God, the purity and righteousness of His own nature would cause Him to act for and toward that as His chiefest mark. That is the highest sacrilege, to alienate the proper good and rights of God and employ them for our own use. To steal from Him His own honor to put, and to put it into our own cabinets. When we love ourselves and act for no other end but ourselves, we invest ourselves with the dominion which is the right of God and take the crown from His head. For as the crown belongs to the King, so to love His own will, by His will and for Himself, is blasphemy when therefore we are by self-love transformed wholly into ourselves. We make ourselves our own foundation without God and against God. In wealth, riches, friends, and the best thing in the world, our lives, when we prefer them before God as our chief happiness, it is an infinite wrong. Because the infinite goodness and excellency of God is denied. As though the creature or lust we love or our own life which we prefer in that short moment before Him had a goodness in, in itself. It is a vilifying of God when we make these things as our end for ourselves. It is to deny God as better than ourselves. We assert ourselves as His superior by such action, such thoughts, as if we were infinitely more superior to God, even though we are His creatures. Man cannot dishonor God more than by referring that to His own glory, which God made for His own praise. The first evidence of practical atheism is self-love. And these are the five evidences of self-love. Going back to the evidences of practical atheism, second evidence is accusing God of injustice. Accusing God of injustice. We are angry when God acts consistently with His nature. When God acts consistently with His holiness with His justice, with His righteousness, we are angry and we shake our fists at God and say, you are not fair. That is not right. 
and we accuse God. We say, we will teach God knowledge. Every disobedience to the law is a charge against Him that He might have provided better for His creature. Men set a high price upon themselves and are angry that God does not value them at the same rate they value themselves. This is the epidemic disease of human nature. They think they deserve caresses instead of rods. And before the cross are more ready to tear out the heart of God than humbly beat their own hearts. When we accuse God, we applaud ourselves. We vindicate and justify ourselves and make ourselves His superiors, intimating that we have acted more righteously to Him than He has done to us. The third evidence is envy. Envying the gifts and prosperities of others are evidence of practical atheism. Envy has a deep stain of practical atheism and is a cause of atheism. We are unwilling to leave God to be the proprietor and to do what He will with His own. And as a creator, to do what He pleases with His creatures. We assume that we have liberty to direct God and tell Him what to do. Tell Him what portions. Tell Him when. Tell Him how He should bestow upon His creatures. This sin is an imitation of the devil whose first sin upon earth was envy. We charge the author of these gifts with injustice that he has not dealt with us equally or that God is ignorant That God has missed the mark. Where does envy spring from? But practical atheism. Number four. The fourth evidence is unworthy imaginations of God. Unworthy imaginations of God. This is universal by nature. We are all infected with someone or other ill opinion of Him. We think that He is not so holy. He is not so powerful, just, and good as He is revealed in Scripture. We join a new notion of God in our vain fancies and represent Him not as He is, but as we would have Him be, fit for our own use and suited for our own pleasure. All the wickedness in this world, which is nothing else but presuming upon God, rises from such vain interpretations of the goodness of God. Our willful misapprehensions of God are the cause of our misbehavior in all our worship. Our sloven, lazy services tell Him to His face what slight thoughts and apprehensions we have of Him, these unworthy imaginations of God are likewise a vilifying of Him. This is worse than absolute atheism or denial of God. It is more commendable to think that He does not exist than to think such a one as inconsistent with His nature. Charnock said, it is better to deny His existence than to deny His perfection. Oh, the hypocrisy when we do this. Exhortations. Four exhortations. And I will propose a cure, a definitive cure for practical atheism. Number one, let us labor to be sensible of this atheism in our nature and be humbled for it. Let's not be proud presumptuous, have high view of ourselves. Let's be sober. Let's be, you know, let's be real. Let's be honest. And acknowledge this atheism that is out of control in our hearts. And let's be humble for it. How ought we lie in the dust and go bowing under the humbling thoughts of it all of our days? Let us be sensible of it in ourselves. Have any of our hearts been a soil wherein the fear and reverence of God has naturally grown 
No. Have we not too often relied upon our own strength and made a calf out of our own wisdom? Shall we not be sensible of that whereby we split, we spill the blood of our souls and give a stab to the heart of our own salvation? Let us therefore be truly sensible of it. That the consideration draws tears from our eyes and sorrow from our souls. Let us urge the thoughts of it upon the hearts to the core of that pride is eaten out and our stubbornness changed into humility till our heads become water and our eyes fountain of tears and be a spring of prayer to God to change the heart and mortify the atheism in it until we tearfully mourn and consider what a sad thing it is to be a practical atheist. Secondly, let us consider the patience and mercy of God. It gives us an occasion this morning to admire the wonderful patience and mercy of God. How many millions of practical atheists breathe every day in His air and live upon His bounty who deserve to be inhabitants of hell rather than the possessors of His heart. An infinite holiness has been offended. An infinite justice has been provoked. Yet an infinite patience forbears the punishment and an infinite goodness relieves our wants. Has He not opened His arms when we spurned with our feet? Has He not held out His alluring mercy when we have brandished against Him a rebellious sword? All these are the wonders of His mercy and they have been enhanced by the heinousness of our atheism. Third exhortation. Watch against this atheism and be daily employed in the mortification of it. Be on guard against this atheism, this practical, this secret atheism, and be daily employed in the mortification of it. Sin is nothing else but a turning from God and centering in self. There are just two questions to ask in this third exhortation. Is God my rule in regard of His will? And is God my end in regard to His glory? Is God my authority? And is God my ultimate end? Fourthly, be often in the views of the excellencies of God. Be often thinking about the excellencies, the beauty, the glory of God. That is why we're studying God's attributes. Let us therefore consider Him as the only happiness set up as a true God in all our understandings, possess our hearts with a deep sense of His desirable excellencies above all other things. This is the main thing we are to do, our great business. And then finally, the cure for the secret and practical atheism. It's so simple, so profound. The cure is the gospel of Christ. At one time, we were rebellious atheists. We are proud atheists, openly, blatantly blaspheming God at every opportunity, sinning without shame, sinning with a swagger. And God saved us from that. God made us holy. He opened our eyes, broke our hearts. He caused us to understand the truth, caused us to hear through the gospel of Christ. And now we are mired in this secret atheism, in this practical atheism. How will God rescue us from this? The gospel of Christ. The cross of our Lord. This is how, this is the way out. Meditate upon the cross. Meditate upon our depravity and yet the mercy of God. That He knew us before we were even born. Before the foundation of the world, He looked at all of humanity. We were all worthless. We were all 
gone astray. We are all sinful before God, yet out of His own good pleasure, He chose us. And Christ came, humble as a servant, lowly as a man, and died a slave's death on the cross to be our substitute, to die our death, to receive God's wrath, God's punishment, God's judgment that we might be spared. And by our faith in Christ, not by our works lest we should boast, but by simply trusting in Christ and trusting in God alone, He saved us. And He's sanctifying us, rescuing us from this practical atheism, all by the power of the cross. What is the way out? It is Christ. It is the gospel. It is the cure. Let us stay near the cross of Jesus Christ. Pause for a few minutes. We live in such a hectic and fast-paced world that we have to fight for even a moment's time to be alone with God in our thoughts. And I know that for many of you, you're not used to this, that you're uncomfortable with silence. You're uncomfortable with being still. But after our study, God warns our heartfelt prayers. Let us go before God who knows all and ask Him, humble ourselves before Him and ask Him to reveal any sinful, offensive way that's in us. He looks not at the outward man, but looks at the heart. And all this time, He has seen that secret atheism untethered, out of control, reigning in our hearts. All that time, He's seen us in private. He's seen our practical atheism lived out. While we profess such loyalty in public, He saw us in secret. Let's marvel at His patience, at His mercy, and let's appeal to the gospel of Christ. Let's be again, let's again reaffirm our faith in Christ and the gospel as the way out, as a cure for this infectious disease that reigns, pervaded our souls. Merciful, patient, gracious and kind Father. Lord, we marvel, we put our hands to our mouths as we consider how kind you have been to us. Lord, you have given us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. You've been so patient with us for burning us by the cross. Lord, our May our hearts be brought low. I know that for many of us, our pride is raging. We want to, our flesh says, this is not true. You don't know. These aren't the truths about our heart. But by the Holy Spirit, you have granted us grace to know that yes, these are all true. We have rebelled against you and continue to rebel as sin is a cursing of God in your face, in your presence, Lord, we are guilty of such things. Lord, we are 
brought low by these revelations. And yet we say, though they're new to us, we've known it all along. Help us to be sober. Help us to be sensible. And help us, O Lord, to cling to the cross of Christ all the more. May the cross be precious, be cherished, for that is our only hope. Only by the sacrifice of Christ can we stand in your presence. Only by the sacrifice of Christ are we able, Lord, to to be saved and to have our great sins, great offenses to you be forgiven, blotted out for eternity. Lord, our trust is not in ourselves, but it's in the cross. For that, we give you thanks and we give you praise. Therefore, as believers, we are able to, in soberness, Rejoice in you, worship you, praise your name. Because we are not as one who are separated from you, apart from the cross. We are ones who have been, draw, we have, we have been drawn near to you by the cross. Therefore, Lord, we call out to you and we depend upon you. Lord, may the truth about you be indeed foundations to our faith foundations of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.